Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray. I'm president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, and today we are delighted to be talking with Dr. Stephen Brent, a professor of sociology at the University of California, Riverside. We're going to be talking about your very interesting new book that's gotten a lot of praise, Two Cheers for Higher Education, recently published by Princeton University Press as well as your thoughts about connections between higher education and the labor market. As we sit here at on the campus of UC Riverside, I can't help but think back to Clark Kerr and the enormous influence he had on the development of the higher education system, not just in California, but really the country as a whole. You actually had a chance to get to know him a little bit and work with him, in fact, I think on at least one book. I'd be curious about your reflections about him and the role that he played in the development in higher education in California and in the country. Well, Clark Kerr was the most important figure in American higher education and possibly global higher education in the mid-20th century. He was very instrumental in the development of the California Master Plan, for one thing, which created a three-tiered system in California. That was where you had the community colleges, and then you had the state colleges and the University of California. That was emulated in many states uh, outside of California. He built the University of California. Uh, There are now six members of the Association of American Universities, our UC campuses. Berkeley, during his chancellorship, was thought to be the best balanced, uh, outstanding research university in the country, which is quite an accomplishment for a public university when you have private universities like Harvard and Stanford. He built strength across the UC system when he was president of the UC system. He wrote very influential works. The most uh, important is The Uses of the University, which was his Godkin Lectures at Harvard, published in 63. I think every student of higher education has read that book maybe several times. In that book, he coined the term the multiversity. And then he went on to become the president of the Carnegie Commission, and they produced something like 70 books about higher education, which created a blueprint and a a framework for understanding higher education and its accomplishments and, and its future. So tremendously influential person, And I was fortunate to meet him when he was quite elderly. He gave the keynotes uh, talk at a conference I organized when he was age 90 or 89. And he spoke without notes in full paragraphs. And we, we marveled at his capacity, even at that fairly advanced age. So a remarkable person. What was he like as a, as an individual on a personal level? He did make inquiries about people. He was humane in that way, and I think you get that sense from his work also. I wouldn't say he was the life of the party type of person, but he was he was genuinely interested, and he made numerous inquiries, for example, about, you know, me and my family, and so I, I had the sense of a, of, of a warm, but obviously cerebral at the same time person. He passed away, I guess, a little over 15 years ago. How do you think he would, if he sort of had a chance to come back for a day or two and observe higher education in 2019, do you think there's anything that would surprise him or that any observations he might have based on your past experience with him? Well, I think there's certain aspects of change during the period uh, since his death might come as a bit of a surprise to him. I think the connection of universities with business community 
was not nearly advanced as advanced, although it was happening uh, clearly in the early 2000s. The role of universities in technology development obviously was also happening, but has continued and flourished. I would say maybe the global character of uh, some American universities with branch campuses in foreign countries, lots of exchange with other countries, both scholarly exchange, student exchange, that's advanced quite a bit since his time. I don't think that he would be that surprised because we'd been dealing with this already since the 70s of trying to come up with other resources besides state funding, but that's continued to be a big issue, obviously. Most of the trends that we've seen, you know, were really products of the 1970s, 1980s, and so he was still around then. Probably the degree to which universities have become devoted to social inclusion has advanced since his time as well. We are here, of course, in your office at UC Riverside today, one of America's great research universities, a place that's known as being one of the most diverse of the research universities, and also uh, I think has garnered some really positive attention from Washington Monthly as a place that's been one of the top universities in terms of driving social mobility. Dr. Brent, can you talk a little bit about what makes, where does UC Riverside fit within the California system and within higher education in the country? What makes this an interesting, distinctive place? I think it is an interesting, distinctive place for the following reason. It's a, it's a strong research university. We have world-famous scholars. I think there are five members of the National Academy of Science in just the botany program alone. A couple of Nobel Prize winners are on the faculty. Creative writing is also extremely important. There's a lot of departments that are world-renowned. And then we've got the social mission, which is a mission that is related, as you say, to social mobility. We happen to be in an area of Southern California which has not been. It's off the coast, and you have a lot of families that are lower income, lower to middle income. Many families, there's not higher education in the family. So we have quite a few first-generation students. And I think we have shown that if you have good organization and you provide stimulating classes and the right number of classes at the right times and help students succeed in other ways as well, you can, this is atypical, but leverage a high-quality research faculty to a social mission. And I think the campus has been quite successful in that regard. It's a special place. I'm delighted to have a chance to visit you today and, of course, to be on the campus, actually, I think for the first time in my career. Several years back, actually 2002, I guess we're going on almost two decades now, you edited a book called The Future of the City of Intellect, uh, which had a big impact on my own thinking about higher education. There's also a chapter in that book that you authored called The Rise of the Practical Arts. And for me, that chapter really represented the first time that I, I thought about how to think about different degree fields and, and their relationship with each other and sort of with the academy overall. Around that same time, I read a piece by Dick Scott at Stanford. I think he's recently retired. Do, do, do you know him? Uh, yes, I know him. He wrote a piece, I'm, I'm forgetting where it was published, but he talked about the practical arts and the liberal arts. He also made a distinction and, and essentially kind of talked about this third category, which he characterizes vocational programs, which I think in your scheme would essentially represent sort of the newer entrance to the practical arts, things like parks and recreation management, construction services, and so forth. 
that involve kind of occupation-specific knowledge, but maybe without as much grounding and sort of a theoretical frameworks, if you will. You talked about that a little bit in that book and in some of your other writing. One of the things that I noticed in my research looking at underemployment of college graduates was that there's a, a strong sort of hierarchy against those three segments where graduates of the practical arts like engineering tend to have the lowest levels of underemployment or stated differently, the highest levels of college level employment liberal arts behind that. And then actually, ironically, the the highest levels of underemployment, the individuals that have studied the sort of, quote, vocational programs. It's interesting how that has played out. And one of the things that you've touched on that I think helps to explain perhaps some of those outcomes is the differences in the academic experiences that students have, at least on average, or at least in the UC system, let's say, in particular, where some of your research was around uh, average study time, around the level of critical thinking and analytical work that is done and so forth. Um, I, I don't know if you if there's anything you might want to share around that topic as you think about the implications of the differences of these types of programs and the, the employment outcomes that they experience after the fact. And I suppose I'm getting a little bit into the new book, actually, as I asked that question as well. And your work has been very interesting in showing the patterns of uh, underemployment and unemployment um, among the graduates of the disciplines and their pay. I think there's a couple of factors here. One is obviously market demand for different subjects, and another is the rigor of the subject. And I think if you look at pay scale, which is one of the ways you see what the average incomes are of college graduates, maybe the first 10 are all engineering disciplines at mid-career And so that's a combination of very robust demand and rigorous curriculum that not every student can succeed in. We know, though, that a rigorous curriculum is not the really, in some way, the key factor because in Latin and Greek, for example, are very rigorous as far as the demands on students, and yet the market demand is not as much. Really, (laughs) you don't have the market demand. So something that's sort of interesting about study time and the expectations for analytical and critical thinking, though, that we have looked into and which we we had surprising results. We felt that it's likely that analytical and critical thinking would be a bigger factor in the humanities and social sciences because they're often taught in seminar-style classrooms where there's discussion of texts and you have to write papers where you compare and contrast and use evidence to support your arguments. And at least that was the tradition that I grew up in when I was taking humanities and social science classes. And we were very surprised in a study we did of the University of California at least as far as the survey results were concerned, we didn't see strong differences across the disciplines in the analytical and critical thinking experiences that students had. We did see strong differences in their self-reported study time, and not surprisingly in the natural sciences and engineering. Study time was, at least reported study time was, significantly greater than in other disciplines. Um, And I think that's a testimony to they're more, maybe more rigorous and more difficult in some ways disciplines. Although some people, you know, I think it's also worth saying that not everybody who can grind through an engineering curriculum would succeed in other fields. Like the interpretive skills that you would need, let's say in a communications major or in other humanities majors, 
students who do well in engineering may not do well in those disciplines. And so one thing that's wonderful about universities is that there is a place for students who have different, maybe it's the way their brains are wired or their developed skills, what have you, there is a place for them. But it's true that the place in the labor market is not equal for all of these disciplines. And some part of the problem that we see in the humanities and some other disciplines now is that universities are oriented towards those that have labor market demand. And so we are seeing cutbacks in some of the traditional humanities disciplines in particular, in the arts in some places. And that's I think it's a challenge to those disciplines to say, here are skills that we build, and we can demonstrate the skills that we build. And certainly writing skills, oral communication skills, design skills, there are a lot of things that should be in the frame and are important in the labor market. And one hopes that those disciplines will continue to be vital because the works they teach are vital and if they can connect those works with skill development, I think they can recover. It actually speaks to, you know, there were certain things you, you learn in whenever you do a research project, and then certain things you kind of think are probably true, but you haven't been able to prove it yet. One of the interesting things that I sort of thought about a lot was we, we tend to think about, you know, when we talk about connections between higher education and labor market, it's largely grounded in this notion of human capital development. And we tend to think of that as being something that in, in a way the education system at large has a monopoly on. But as it turns out, as we look at people and their development over the long course of their career, tremendous amount of their human capital development actually happens in the context of their work life. And so one of the things I, I really came to appreciate more about looking at these ranges of different employment outcomes for, for graduates in different degree fields is that a lot of the, let's say, the mid-career earnings advantage of, say, engineering grads is not so much they studied engineering because most of them actually are not working as engineers 15 years later, although many of them are, but rather that because particularly large percentage of them are able to secure college-level employment, they're in the types of occupations that are further developing that human capital and also, of course, giving them access to other college-level jobs. That have career ladders. Jobs, yeah, exactly. Also. And that that really was hit home recently. There was a report, I don't know if you saw it, uh, I think last year, uh, Burning Glass, a big data analytics company, uh, did something. Uh, they called it the report is called the Permanent Detour. Did you have you seen this? No. Really interesting piece of work. And what they did was sort of a kind of a synthetic longitudinal study where they analyzed millions of resumes of college graduates. And what they found, of course, we've known about underemployment for a long time. That was not a new finding. But what was really interesting that they found was that underemployment looked like it was pretty sticky. So that it wasn't just that a large percentage of college graduates initially are underemployed, it's that most of those who initially do not get a college-level job essentially do not get a college-level job later on. So while the, let's say, underemployment starts off at 40% or so, and it, it goes down pretty quickly, but it actually levels out at around 30% mm. for the adult uh, full-time employed mm. you know, population of, of bachelor's grads and above in the, in the U.S. And part of it really is this issue that if folks don't sort of make an, an attachment relatively quickly to a college-level occupation, they end up not getting there. There's been some other research actually showing, I'm forgetting the um, scholar, but I think a couple different folks have looked at this, that employers are actually more likely to hire unemployed college graduates for college-level jobs than underemployed college graduates. They literally would select someone who is not working 
that's a college graduate over someone who has a college degree but is working as a barista uh, or, or what have you into a college-level occupation. So it really speaks to this issue, not to jump ahead, but when you think about underemployment, what I've come to believe is that this transition point, you know, we talk about colleges preparing people for the seventh job, and that there's a lot of truth in that. But it turns out the first job is actually really, really important in setting trajectory for the future. That's interesting. I, I don't know that report. When I was doing research for my book, Two Cheers for Higher Education, I ran into work by the Federal Reserve in New York that Jason showed, and Richard Dykes, yeah, showed yeah. very high levels, like you report 40% or, or more initial underemployment. Historically, that's melted over time, but it may be for the new cohorts, it's not melting. And so that's a huge issue because if you have 30% of students who are unable to move out of that underemployed, non-college level job and they have accumulated debt and they have gone to college with high expectations, that's an issue. And it could be that some of the public opinion that we're seeing now that's a little more critical of the role of higher education is connected to that problem, that sticky problem. So this is not a phenomenon that is just due to higher education. Obviously, it has to do with the structure of the labor force and how that structure of the labor force is changing and the number of college-level jobs that are available out there. But for universities and colleges, they need to be aware of what's happening in the labor market and take it into account as they're preparing students. And help their students navigate them. Sure. You know, the interesting thing about the New York Fed research you mentioned was they, in fact, had talked about the melt or the improvement but they had looked at early career, I forget the exact age, but they'd actually cut it off at around age 30, I think. And when I did my dissertation, I, I carried it all the way through to you know age 65 because I had all the census data and saw that actually pretty soon after age 30, it, it flattens out. Mm. So that underemployment was actually a very common phenomena at any age, really. And a variety of different research pieces that are out there essentially suggest that this sort of stickiness factor. So in general, you don't see folks get college-level jobs and then 10 years later, not have one. It's a very high concentration that once you're kind of in that world, you tend to stay there. If you start off underemployed, a lot of those folks do end up moving into college-level work, but a large percentage of them, in fact, what Burning Glass estimated was the majority of them actually do not make the transition if you don't start out that way. It's very interesting. I want to shift gears uh, to your terrific new book published early this year by Princeton University Press. It's gotten a lot of great reviews, uh, Two Chairs for Higher Education. One of my favorite quotes was even Mintz with Inside Higher Ed. He said his quote was, the most thorough, sweeping, and balanced book that I've read on the strengths and weaknesses of contemporary colleges and universities. Many other superlatives have been written about the book. I have to say, I hope you would take this as a compliment because certainly Mintz one. As I was reading it over the last few weeks, I was thinking about some of Derek Bach's writing and how he has both sort of a clear story, if you will, or a narrative, but he also really supports it with a very broad array of literature references. And I thought you Big did that. Big compliment. I Thank thought you, you did that uh, <laughs> as well. I was thinking a lot about Derek Bach, particularly his book, Our Underachieving Colleges. Not so much because that was your message, but just it was one that really solidified my thinking about his writing. I want to dig into the book a little bit, but could you just start by sharing a little bit about the title? What's that about? Why did you write it? And what are the big things that you explore in the book? Well, the title, Two Cheers for Higher Education, it's a title that was 
thought of against the backdrop of higher education scholarship, which tends to be very pessimistic about the state of higher education. There's the thought that students are deeply in debt, tuition is going up, some of these issues of underemployment that we've talked about. You have many adjunct professors who are teaching the classes, and this is not a success story. But when you look at the data, I think you see that, in fact, American higher education is doing quite well as an institution. So, for example, the R&D expenditures in constant dollars went up more than nine times between 1980 and 2015. The number of published papers went up a at least four and a half times during that period. And citations are a little harder to count because they increase slowly, but we don't see any reason to believe that they haven't also increased. We looked into important inventions, and even though corporate R&D is three or four times the level of university, the universities were responsible for, my estimate, about 40% of the most important inventions during the period we looked at. A lot of our consciousness is shaped by ideas that come out of universities. Everybody now uses the term emotional intelligence. They use the term social capital. These ideas didn't come from out of the blue. They came from university professors and university research. And then we also look at enrollment, and enrollment has, I think, nearly doubled between 1980 and 2015. Those are the years I looked at in the book. And the same thing at the graduate level. If the institution was failing as badly as many scholars feel, and if it was on the brink of being reorganized by online entrepreneurs, I would doubt that there would be such a robust growth in enrollment. But only two cheers because there are a lot of problems. There are problems of teaching and learning. Uh, Students are not learning as much as they could. Many students are not learning as much as they could. We do have problems of cost, affordability. We do have online competition. We do have the growth of adjunct labor force that's very poorly paid. And we have some speech controversies. I think some of what has been said about the climate for speech being non-conducive for certain ideas, there's some truth to that. So there's reasons for concern. So uh, even though we see a very successful institutional arena, only two cheers because we have a long way to go to solve some of our problems. Well, it's, it's a terrific piece of work, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm not done yet, but it's thoroughly highlighted in many places. When I think about discussions about higher education in the U.S., we get a lot of attention around educational attainment, a lot of attention around cost and student debt and so forth. But compared to those two things, which are very important, the amount of focus on learning is way, way behind. In fact, there was even one of the groups, I, I, you would know which group, I'm forget, I don't want to quote the wrong, but one of the major national higher education institutions a few years ago actually raised kind of an alarm that essentially was saying, it's great that we want more people to go to college, but we really need them to actually learn the things that we espouse, you know, the critical thinking and the communication skills and so forth that we espouse when we talk about higher education. The question essentially is, why do you think it is that there's not more attention on that topic And is it perhaps in part that it's just, it's very hard to measure and it's hard to sort of wrap your hands around how you would improve it, I suppose, versus, you know, we think about educational attainment, you know, we can set quantitative targets. When you think about cost, you can kind of break that down quantitatively. 
Learning is a much squishier thing, I think. But I'd be curious about your Yeah, I agree with that. Now there's attention also to graduation rates. Yeah. Uh, that's good. But I, I couldn't agree more that sometimes you, they say equality without quality is hollow. And I agree with that. And there's no doubt that students could be learning more in college. And we have to look at it in a complex way because they're learning things outside of the classroom, too. And, in fact, I just published a paper about the co-curriculum and student clubs and organizations. And students gain some adult skills in those arenas, too. They learn how to run meetings. They learn how to recruit new members. They learn how to put on events. And many students have those experiences, at least students who go to big universities, where there's sometimes as many as a thousand clubs or more at UC Berkeley. And at some of these colleges, there's one club for eight or nine students. So you really have opportunity there. So the point is that the classroom is one arena and the most important arena for learning, but there are other arenas for learning on the university campus. Though the issues are profound as far as learning go, there's very good evidence that students are not reading much of the signed work. They're not writing enough. I mean, if you go back to the Aram and Roxa book, and I think the literature since Aram and Roxa has, if anything, said the situation is worse. I've been reviewing papers recently that suggest that the situation could be worse than Aram and Roxa said, but they drew attention to the, the expectations that college faculty have. So They talked actually about this mutual non-aggression. Right, right. <laughs> right. So, right. The, so the trade-off is high evaluations for not demanding much work. <laughs> Right. So that is high student that, evaluation. That, yeah, high student evaluation. So that that's a corruption of what the system should be about. But fortunately, there are ways around this, and there are ways to encourage more learning. And when I was in the university administration, a part of my job was to advocate for these teaching techniques where there's a research literature that suggests they really help student learning. And so now that I'm teaching undergraduates again, I'm using them and we'll see how much difference in learning occurs, but certainly they seem to be helpful. So you can do things to increase student engagement and participation, which is one factor. If students are just passively listening that's not good. So you need to break up the classes and have them talk about problems and then report out, answer questions constantly in class. There are many techniques to encourage that. I even give out points to students who have not talked up if they're willing to hazard an answer to a question. So we do a lot of that. And then accountability is important too. So you have to have frequently, if not every class session, Ask students to write 100 and 150 words about what they read, and that creates an accountability for reading. It's very hard to write well unless you read and you read deeply. And so, and it's hard to write well if you don't write very much. And that's <laughs> right. And so you have to have writing assignments, and you have to provide feedback to the students to help them improve. And that's time-intensive. And, and that's really very time-intensive to do that. So some of this is resource-based. Uh, I think professors feel squeezed as far as time goes, and TAs feel squeezed, but that's the only way to help students learn. And I think the system has been asked to prove itself in these ways through student learning outcomes, but unfortunately that system doesn't work terribly well. 
I think it really is up to the individual instructors to take, with the help of the institutions, to take what is being learned in the research literature, disseminate that, and then help the professors to bring it into their practice. Another thing that I talk about is the Wyman-Gilbert self-assessment of teaching, where they use what has been learned in the research literature for faculty to assess whether they are doing it. And it's a way of, in a non-punitive way, seeing whether you are using what we know about teaching and learning in your own practice. And I think that is also becoming more popular, which is a positive sign as far as I'm concerned. You talk about how the universities kind of negotiate a, a variety of sort of competing demands and missions and so forth. And that, as I think about where learning you know, stands, it seems that part of it has to do with where administrative you know, leadership is focused, right? And as particularly on the public universities, the states have largely retreated as a primary funding partner. You know, we move toward this sort of, you know, state-affiliated versus, you know, state-funded institutions. University presidents increasingly having to spend a large percentage of their time on fundraising and external affairs and so forth. It seems that maybe the balance has gotten off a little bit, perhaps, uh, in terms of sort of the quality of the learning environment and supporting learning as in competition with perhaps some of these other missions of the institution. Seems like well, I do agree with that. Uh, of course, there's a lot of variation from institution to institution on this. Um, yeah, resources are very big. And the liberal arts colleges are tend to be more interested, be more but they're, they're also the changing. Yeah, you see more business degrees. Yes, <laughs> yes, they're very much changing, more market-based master's degrees at liberal arts colleges, that's happening. If you look at it from the point of view of the administration, trying to make payroll and trying to do all the things that universities are asked to do, including compliance with a lot of regulation, there are several different resource bases. But one thing you might want to do, and we've seen almost every institution do it, is grow the size of the student body and therefore bring in both more state dollars if you're public, but also more tuition dollars. And so... And there's some economies of scale, right, with the research enterprise. Yeah. So even the very selective places like Princeton and Yale have grown a little bit over time, and Stanford has grown significantly Although not nearly as much as demand as other spaces have grown. Still only 5% five, <laughs> 5 of the students get in who apply. So then you've got donors, and donors are, they tend to be interested in more practical fields. But looking at it from the point of view of an administrator, bodies are important. What connects as far as human capital development and cognitive development, from the administrative point of view, it may be less important than the flow of bodies into the institution and out of the institution. They can say, well, look, our graduation rates are pretty high, but what can students do who graduate? You know, that is left as a kind of black box. And so I think the incentives and the pressures on administrators are really to expand resources. And one way to do that is expand enrollment. And that does not come necessarily with the proviso that we have to really develop how much we have to contribute to cognitive and human de capital development there. So it's up to the professors and it's up to the support staff, the learning centers and of uh, the academies of distinguished teachers who help improve teaching and learning. That's where the traditional aims to develop competence 
and help students develop their cognitive capacities. That's where it's going to have to come from. You speak to a trend in the book, and I, I haven't gotten through all of the pieces in the book that touch on this, but I'd be curious if you talk about it. I, I got the sense that you suggested perhaps that as universities have grown, as they've become more accessible to a you know, broader socioeconomic strata in the country, that in some ways there's been perhaps a little bit of a bifurcation of, in some ways, maybe even academic expectations. I don't want to overstate that. But, but there, were, there were a couple of places where it, it seemed like you were suggesting that maybe in some cases there are almost, maybe I shouldn't say deliberately so, but there are less rigorous tracks, obviously within degree fields. But does any of that resonate with what you were trying to say? Well, there are less rigorous tracks for sure. I'll cite Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton who talk about business light, L-I-T-E tracks like recreation and fitness and sports management and even aspects of marketing and communications as being low expectation fields where students often can get by on the force of personality and even physical appearance. So there's that set. Uh, I think that there's another set of disciplines in the kind of cultural studies fields that at least are often reputed to have fairly low expectations of students. So Yes, there are differences among the disciplines as far as that's concerned, and they're not entirely tied to the market, interestingly enough. If you go into business school, there are aspects of business school that are very, that are quite rigorous. I think finance, accounting, probably strategy, but there are other parts of business school that may not be. And it's often said about business. General management. Yeah, it's often said about business school, it's a networking opportunity and not necessarily a cognitive development opportunity for some students. So, and yet, there's demand for business students. And so it's not simply a function of market demand. But yes, for sure, what you're saying is right. There are disciplines that early in our conversation, you identified the vocational, what you call the vocational disciplines. I think that's where we have probably the biggest issues as far as that goes. One of our big interests in Virginia is leveraging higher education to drive quality job creation and economic growth in the Commonwealth. Virginia has been a place that, while it has a very strong economy, it's a wealthy state overall. It's been a state that has somewhat underperformed in job growth over the last decade or so, uh, largely tied to our over-reliance on the federal government. So when you have BRAC and sequestration, (laughs) we tend to have a slowdown. But on this theme of leveraging higher education for economic development, when we had the opportunity to compete for the Amazon HQ2 project, we actually decided to make our case primarily on a historic investment in public universities, colleges, and community colleges to expand computer science and related education, really support not just Amazon, but the needs of the whole you know, tech sector overall. And this, this investment in total will be about uh, $1.1 billion in new state funding for tech education, hundreds of new faculty lines across the state, really exciting program. I've actually believed for some time that I think you call this sort of like a third stream revenue, if I'm not mistaken, sort of tuition, state support, and then there's a variety of of other things. We tend to think of tuition, state funding, research, philanthropy. I actually think there's the potential for economic development to be maybe not a primary funding stream, but in some cases a strategic driver of, of funding when there's an alignment between where a state is trying to go with its growth and where a uh, university wants to go with its growth. In this case, for example, in Virginia, 
We have in particular uh, Virginia Tech with big ambitions to grow their STEM programs, UVA with data science, George Mason with computer science and so forth. And and that's really gone uh, quite well so far. Of course, (laughs) we're going from ideation to implementation, so I'll have to report back in a year. What what do you think states and or universities could be doing to better leverage the potential for higher education to contribute to economic development of, of regions and states? Well, there's some good examples out there. The state of Georgia with um, Georgia Research Alliance. The Georgia Research Alliance mm-hmm. is that is a program that more or less builds around star scientists who are recruited into the major universities there in the state of Georgia and are provided with funding and probably postdoctoral funding as well. And they have, I think, contributed quite a lot. I think part of the deal with uh, with the Georgia Research Alliance is the expectation that new technology development will be part of the agenda for these, for these professors that are hired through the program. And then there have been also in the state of Georgia some very specific programs, like there was a big wireless program that Georgia Tech led. I think it was called the Yamacraw program. State provided some funding for that. New York State has had these centers for excellence for quite a long time. I think some of them have been quite successful. Uh, There's a big nanotechnology corridor in Albany, for example. California has had the centers for science. Let's see, they're called California Institutes for Science and forgetting what the I is for, the other I. Innovation, <laughs> Innovation. of go. course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some of them have been very successful. The states, by and large, uh, there have only been a few states that have uh, seen higher education as a, a, a huge part of the state economic development. Some campuses, though, have also made this a priority. And you've seen a lot of spinoff business development in certain campuses like Austin and Ann Arbor. Uh, Salt Lake City is an interesting one. Boulder, Colorado is interesting. And those universities, through their engineering and their natural sciences, and they're not always started by faculty, sometimes graduate students, they have developed industrial clusters. And they, of course, they try to foster them through the accelerators, business accelerators, and other programs like that, incubation centers. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, you cite a bunch of these examples yeah. in the book. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And part of the, what I wanted to get at in the book was where do we see this happening and where do we not see it happening? And there's some issues that universities have to solve, like is there venture capital nearby? Is there good transportation to venture capital, even if it's not nearby. So one of the problems that places like Cornell and University of Illinois and Champaign-Urbana have is that they're in rural areas. They're not fantastic transportation to large urban areas, uh, to venture capital. And they're just kind of, they have great scientists and engineers there, but they're isolated. And Cornell actually moved to New York City to start Cornell Tech because they couldn't make it happen in Ithaca and the the regions near Ithaca. And I think you see this. This is one of the great challenges of universities, right? Because the university by itself, in some ways, is not enough. You need capital, you need talent. 
and, and it tends to be the big metros. And you are, need to have some kind of anchoring firms often also. Otherwise, you, you end up producing IP that gets commercialized in other places. Exactly. Right? So some of our greatest universities really haven't been terribly successful in the economic development arena. Another great example is Penn State, tremendous university but located in the middle of Pennsylvania, not near anything else. And you can go to Penn State and you'll see no firms in State College. And yet you have this tremendous talent base. So, you know, location has something to do with it, I would say. And then also the traditions of the university has something to do with it. Johns Hopkins University is an important example. They are in the city of Baltimore, but they have almost nothing to do with the city of Baltimore because they're interested in academic acclaim. They are the ivory tower in a way. And there are other institutions that are more or less like that. University of Chicago mm. is one. It's a very mixed and interesting situation. But I would say at the state level, there are some successful examples but most of these run into the same kinds of problems, which is you get a new administration, and the new administration has new priorities, <laughs> and they don't like what the old administration did. Also, firms sometimes have very short time horizons, and they will invest for a little while, and then they'll decide this is investment isn't paying off. And so it's a tricky terrain to navigate. The good news is there's a, there's a lot of case studies out there that universities and states can learn from, right? Yes. I just think there needs to be more attention there, and that's one of the things we're going to try to do in Virginia. The last uh, question I wanted to pose to you is sort of a, an interesting parallel that I see. If you look at what's going on in the geography of, of economic growth in the United States, we see kind of a separation happening where the big metros are doing the best, mid-sized metros second best, small metros third, and then at the bottom, basically the rural and unattached localities. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Enrico Moretti at UC Berkeley has written some really great stuff yes. about this. Um, I also, when I, I thought about that recently is that we were driving out today to see you about big universities vis-a-vis small colleges. And it may be in some ways this scale question renders itself in a similar fashion that, you know, the bigger schools can offer students sort of a no compromises experience. You have all these different academic disciplines, the full variety of extracurriculars that you talked about. You could do an honors college experience in the context of the big state school. Do you think that that same sort of thing, this sort of this bifurcation of economic growth in metro areas, in some ways you could almost apply in a similar way to the more, I would argue, more acute challenges perhaps that some of the small colleges are happening or having rather in comparison to some of our bigger schools. Well, it's a very interesting and insightful remark in my opinion. I think there are a couple of things going on. One is large universities are attractive and they're attractive for a whole variety of reasons. Sometimes for some students, it's a, the football team. And for others, it's the variety of disciplines that they can study or the, the co-curricular, extracurricular activities, the college town atmosphere. So they have a lot going for them. And they're usually much better supported too because they have philanthropy and they are usually better supported by the state when there is uh, and good more graduates funding. and more political pressure. Right, yeah. right. So they have advantages. The other thing that seems to be going on is the same places that are losing population, the colleges are struggling in those places. Yeah. And it's especially the regional comprehensives that are, that are struggling. Often 
the big state university is doing okay, but the regionals. And so we've seen mergers. We've seen some closings. And it's very unusual for a public college or university to close. And so mostly they're merging. But I think if, if I haven't done an analysis of this, but I'm pretty sure that there's a geographical aspect to this. And it's related to population growth and population decline or, or stasis. So we're definitely getting uneven development on several levels in the United States at this moment. But um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting in the time of, just to circle back to Clark Kerr, in the time of Clark Kerr, it was thought that the big universities were problematic because students were felt anonymous and they were too big. And you can remember even the free speech movement at, at Berkeley was about students being treated like being processed as if like they were cattle or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like cattle or something like that. And they said that one of the one of the phrases was don't fold spindle or mutilate like it was a punch card, like they were punch cards. In fact, it seems like those concerns are really unwarranted because the places that have the greatest attraction now are in fact just as you say the the large vibrant research universities. Well, it's a fascinating time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Congratulations again on the book. Thank you. Congrats on all the great things you all are doing at UC Riverside. We're looking forward to featuring you in our next issue of Virginia Economic Review and hope that we'll be able to stay in touch in the future. Me too. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.